Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edaxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi, my name is Malia Hoffman and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today our guest is Tira Goines. She is an early childhood coordinator with Lancaster School District. She has worked in education for over 17 years and has taught grades T, K through 8, served as a district instructional coach supporting NGSS, math, and English language development. She has a master's in curriculum and instruction and will begin her doctoral studies in the fall of 2022. She has four beautiful children, ages 7 through 17, and a husband of 17 years. Hi, Tara. Thanks for joining us today. Can you share with us if there was a moment when you decided you wanted to teach after majoring in business law? It seems like a pretty large departure from what you were doing. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, quite the sidestep. And uh, thank you for having me this morning. Um, I attended Cal State Northridge and majored in business and decided, oh, I'm going to do law school. And um, about a year, just a, a little shy of a year after I was getting ready to promote, I had a reflection. I had a great family um a uh, life professor, and he was having us reflect on our whys. And I remember sitting there and thinking, wow, I don't know if I want to not invest in my own family and into the other um, livelihoods of children and going into law school because it's a commitment. Um, I had talked to some law professors and they were saying I'd have to dedicate probably no less than seven to 10 years of my life Um with 60 hour work weeks to commit to being, um, the goal as a partner at that time. And so I reflected on that and thought I want to invest my time elsewhere. So I, um, I had taken the LSAT, I was ready to go and I made a hard right turn and I continued my education at Cal state Bakersfield, uh, the next year and got my multiple subject teaching credential. So was there, was there, was there a moment, um, where you, where you talk to your family about, about this. And because is, I remember feeling depressed when I, when I had to go talk to my parents about, you know, I, I, I had to switch majors because I failed OCHEM. Uh, 
Um, so I'm not going to be an eye doctor that I wanted to to uh, be and stuff. And so so talk about that. You know, how is that? And then and then what what were you personally going through also? So um, I'm actually the first in my family to graduate from college. So getting there and graduating was its own um, celebration. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, there, I think a, a couple of my family members had predetermined I would do law school. And so that was kind of determined for me. And so when I came to my own realization, that isn't something that was truly in my heart I wanted to do. It felt kind of um, I had this freedom, right? Uh, I could go and do something I really had passion with. I've always connected with kids. Um, a lot of people in my family call me like the baby whisperer or the child whisperer because I just gravitate and have fun with kids. But um, there really wasn't a, a conversation of any kind. I think uh, it was more like what you're asking, like, why? What, what happened? Why are you going from law school to education? And I think when people saw I was just truly happy about this decision, it, nothing else really mattered. It was just moving forward. In your bio, you shared that you were a child in foster care. Is there anything that you want to share about your life from this time? Uh, yeah. Recently, uh, as Fred knows, I was a coordinator for our preschool program. And before that, I had taught TK through eighth grade. And I always thought, oh, I, I really had an affinity for like the sixth to eighth grade students. And then when I taught TKK, that was a great adventure. I love that too. Uh, but something in me really wanted to jump into preschool to understand and to just reconnect. Um, that was about the age when I entered foster care. And so I think it was kind of, uh, in a way, therapeutic and healing for me because I had to go back and take uh, other coursework and uh, kind of take a reflective dive in that developmental period. And it helped me to understand myself and how to work with those kids even more and empowering them with uh, advocating with their own voice and understanding their feelings. So uh, nothing's by accident. I think I landed in that position just at the right time. Did you share your story with your students? Uh, all the time. When I was in middle school, actually, um, one of the first day activities was they had to take an index card and they had to write all their presumptions about me, like where they thought I grew up, how many siblings, um, <laughs> where I went to school, all kinds of things. And then um, throughout the next couple of days, I would share my story and they would have to cross out all the things that they had presumed wrong. And the whole thing was we each have our own story and it's about listening to our narratives to understand that person and to just be careful that we don't walk around with our own bias and prejudice. So every year that was a great activity. I like that activity. I think I'm going to use that with my students. They're master students. So. <laughs> but I think it still applies. It goes, you know, across all yeah. because we do tend to make like assumptions or presumptions about people based on what they look like. Um, and it's a really good way to reflect on your own biases. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of the, um, that was the genesis here as, as to what we do in the, in our, in our podcast is that Malia and I meet interesting people from throughout the world, or I find on social media and I track them down and I ask them, Hey, do you want to, you know, do you want to come? Because I want to hear your story. Um, and and so as a as a, see because I have I have friends that are um, that one of them works with um, foster kids on the on the paperwork legal side um, another another 
friend of mine is pretty pretty high high up, but in the child in the CPS realm. Um, and so, so that's what he's kind of, and he, and he's, and he shares that it's, it's just, you know, every day he's just like the, just hectic with work. Um, now how, how has, or maybe it's difficult because you're, you're, you're part of the foster care system so young has, has any of that influenced you in, in, in any special way, um, with, with your own kids or, or in your, in your job. I mean, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, um, but um, maybe that, maybe that's somewhat different from people that weren't in foster care. Yeah. Yes. And yes, absolutely. Um, I think in working with older children, like grades five and higher, I found myself really trying to mentor and coach students to be their own individual selves. So um, still working with families for sure. But given, as we know, some of our harder populations, like the kids who are in foster or who are in uh, blended families or split families, it's about them recognizing they have their own choices and um, they can really dictate and create their own pathways for their future. Um, Myself, I came from a very broken home, even once reunited. And so um, I think in our traditional setting, it's all about working with the family and empowering them. And there's definitely a place for that, I think, as children are younger. But there's also a point when students become more independent thinkers and we want to empower them to understand they, they still have freedom of choice. Um, sometimes they don't have that family support, no matter how hard we're reaching out and working with them, but we don't want them to think they lose hope, right? Like just because you're in the situation right now, if, like when you turn uh, 18 and you're your own adult, you still have options. Um, for, for someone like me, like I was the kid that was constantly tardy and that wasn't my fault, but you know how that's punitive for students. Um, or I would have to figure out how to get my homework done because I was watching siblings or what have you. A lot of the things our students struggle with, and it's about them not getting caught uh, just in time and what they're experiencing, but understanding there there's a light at the end of that tunnel. That's more for my, when I worked with fifth and up. Um, for our younger children, it's absolutely empowering and equipping our families with tools and strategies and trying to get them to build that foundation with their child and hopefully um, departing what would be strong parenting skills at home to give a safe environment at home and to build that connection. Um, but I do find at some point that sometimes there's a break and we have to really work with our kids, our students, and empower them. I like that. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for policymakers who are considering um, making policies about foster care or people wishing to become foster parents? Oh, that's a very deep question. Um, I think for policymakers um, working with foster families, um, it's it's some sort of check-in system. Like a lot of children are placed and I feel like we try to put in those resources, but then there's no true accountability on how they're doing. Um, We don't really set goals necessarily for our, our foster kids. Like if there's a behavioral goal, we do that in school, but I don't know that it's outside of school too. And so a lot of times you see like this push and pull 
where foster families are really trying, but a lot of times um, in the system there, we, we promote, especially in California, um, back with the primary family if possible. And sometimes that, that makes it harder on children, right? Because sometimes just going back to their family where the original um, unsettling whatever happened to pull them out, um, starts this whole cyclical thing on their emotions and their behavior. So working with the students to really set these goals for behavior and academics and ha having some sort of reward in place for them. Um, again, because we're working with the child and making their own choices, um, foster families do the best they can. And sometimes they just don't have uh, the time with the child or um, the, the buy-in from from within the system really to, to hold the student accountable to or to reward them properly. So I find that, um, I think for foster families, that would be helpful and with the schools because you could kind of make that bridge, that connection. And then, yeah, you 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 reminded me um, as, as, as you were speaking, uh, there's a friend of mine who's a, um, a single foster parent to two girls um, and and she and and after I think after 13 months she had to give them give them back. Any recommendations for for people like that? That and and it was and it was a big issue. In fact, she's she spent more time with them than I think their um, their their previous foster family. Um, so any you know what what would you recommend for someone like her who's now going through this process and and this is just recently like maybe a week ago she had to give them back yeah i i empathize um when i was actually reunited with my mom that was not my choice but it was part of the the statute in california the goal of cps to reunite for the reunification um, if I could promote anything, I think when considering things like that, policymakers or who have you should take stronger account into the, the well-being and the decision of the child. Um, a lot of times that's not as heavily weighted. Um, also, those who are supporting services, um, kids who are in foster receive therapy services. So I think really listening to the therapist um, and and understanding the, the emotional ramifications. Um, I know for myself, uh, I mean, there's, I'm still, I always deal with part of it. Those in foster always deal with part of it. And that's part of that, that growing and understanding and reflection on ourselves. Um, even people not in foster, but, um, yeah, I would, I think that's what I would take out of it is we need to listen to the children more. Um, I don't know. That's so hard as an adult when uh, you've built that relationship with a child and then, you know, you have to let go. So for your friend, I'm sorry that happened. Oh, thank you, too. Switching gears a little bit. Um, what did you do as an instructional coach? And then how did that experience lend you to what you're doing today? Um, so I 
was an, a district instructional coach and I supported um, math and ELD originally. Um, and our district decided ELD would go to a coordinator position. So then I supported NGSS. Um, I loved being an instructional coach. It was so fun. I love doing professional development. I love learning. Um, I got to work with my good friend, Anthony Kwan in LACO and got to be a trainer of trainers for NGSS. Um, and do the whole rollout and curriculum adoption with our district. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, math, I also enjoyed um, digging into our state framework and really looking at the strategies and tools that empower our teachers and then doing parenting workshops as well so parents understood Common Core because there's so many misconceptions about uh, math and how we teach it in Common Core. Um, it allowed me to really build a lot of uh, networking with other districts and seeing what was working, uh, what we were doing, uh, how to kind of avoid barriers that had happened in other districts so that we could excel. Uh, it allowed me to build great relationships in our district. And um, I think it, it created a level of confidence, too, in, in knowing that I could uh, support others. So that was a fun experience. And I did that for six years. Wow. Um, so then what do you see as, as, as issues in California regarding early childhood education? Uh, um, I think uh, one big one is the workforce we're dealing with, right? Like building our workforce. Um, I think there's a great vision in supporting the earlier or younger ages the three-year-olds really trying to reach out and um, go younger if possible. I think as we move forward, and I think there's intention in it, is uh, understanding that bridge from preschool into the LEA and some of the barriers like uh, um, locations, like having the actual classrooms, having the space for it on our school campuses, especially as we're bridging into UTK. I know there's a lot of conversation in our district about that, like what will that look like? Um, the time to train also our administrators, um, them having an understanding of that. Also another piece that seems to come up and I think needs to be considered are um, the tools we're going to be using. Like, is there going to be a lot of flexibility on how we assess and what we teach with, or will that be a little bit more prescribed as we get into this? And then, and then kind of, kind of as a follow-up, um, do you, do you happen to, to, to know how early childhood education is globally? Um, and then if, and then if you, if you do know, um, how do we do things differently or or the uh, same? Globally as in like? Around the world? Around the world. Yeah. Um, a little bit, not in great detail. I don't, um, I know other countries start far later in actual education compared to us. It's more of a play-based approach and just discovery approach everywhere else. And we're really pushing the academics. And that's why I'm curious about the assessment piece and the curriculum piece as we move forward with our um, focus on on preschool and UTK, what that's going to look like if we're really going to stick to the theory of a play-based and discovery-based education, or as we get younger, will that become more prescribed? Yeah, the yeah. thing is, is we tend to um, want to assess, assess, assess. Um, 
students, right? And so then it takes the fun out of the play. Um, and that's what I, I find in my, um, you know, reading of the literature about um, schools around the world that uh, start early childhood education, but not formal education, right? So they have these play-based um, schools and it fosters that love of learning and that curiosity. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a way that we could assess if it's working without assessing the children to see if it's working, to try to keep that barrier and that kind of preserve that, um, that safe space of learning for those younger, younger ones. I don't thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I think with the adults as well, just to kind of mirror what you're saying too, is it takes the fun from the adults as well, because they pre become more pre-consumed with, did I teach this a certain way? Did I prepare this a certain way rather than being creative and artistic um, in how they're providing activities for the students to discover their learning? Um, so with that said, I think you could create like a rubric based system where the teachers are more reflective about how the students engage rather than how each individual student performed. So it's more of a holistic reflection on the teacher, on the activities that they're providing rather than the outcome necessarily. Almost like a TPA reflection, right? In it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't hate it. I don't, I think it's, I think it's. Yeah. moving in the right direction. No, well. I, I, yeah. And I, that's what I like about it is that reflection piece, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I think, but I think people, I think a lot of educators in teacher ed were doing it before the TPA even came into existence. Whereas teacher educators were having their students, their student teachers reflect on what they were doing and said, okay, now what are you going to do for next time? Type of thing. Yeah. But, but, but this, this is, Good, good mentor teachers, good coaches, good supervisors were having their teacher candidates do this, but not always, right? And so this is a good way to make sure that everyone is being, um, getting the same experience. So next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 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 so Tara, you were, you were kind of talking about it. Um, you're now the, um, you're the secretary of education. Okay. And so, so you got that magic wand. What would you like to do and, and how would you wish to, or what would you like to convey to educators and families about early, early childhood education? And, and if you were to build your ideal program, what would it look like? Hmm. Um, Based on my experiences, what I would like um, or I feel like would have a huge impact is one, um, really having the opportunity for families to be brought in. So maybe there's, I know there's funding there, but funding where parents kind of have to participate. And I know like in a lot of programs, that's not necessary, but just to help build that, bridge that gap and making it incentivized in a way. So if they're participating, um, there's different things within the program that would allow parents to feel like I can take the day from work and participate in this workshop, or I can participate in understanding more about how my child's learning. 
um, and really providing the resources for them to support at home. I think uh, we we do a great job in bringing in our parents and offering workshops, but as we all know, participation is hit and miss. It just depends on the day, the time, the topic, um, but really having that that um, that partnership at a young age is so important. Uh, I think another thing too is people understanding that bridge from preschool into our TK and K grades. A lot of times they feel like there has to be certain elements in our preschool so that our students are more successful as they get into the kinder TK kinder grades. And that's not necessarily true. We're trying to force a peg into, you know, a square hole and that doesn't always work. So just, um, I think having the freedom and the time and the space to convey what preschool is all about, the intent behind preschool, I think it would solve a lot of problems with our kids because I think we're really noticing now the social emotional ramifications, especially after COVID. Um, and if we had the space to say, this is really what we're trying to build is this foundation of social emotional learning for our kids so they can focus on academics as their ready and age appropriateness <laughs> occurs. Um, it would make a huge impact, but forcing it at a younger age doesn't, doesn't solve the issue for experiencing it. Yeah. And, and, um, one of the things that I was, that I've been finding because uh, most of my research, uh, within my time in academia was on families and schools, um, and, and ways in which we could build partnerships and to create allies, uh, with 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 families um, because there are so many things that are difficult for families to do um, you know and and so a lot of the programs that me and others were, were doing it we were doing it at the secondary level where at that point parents are you know they don't they just don't know how to mm-hmm. because we as you know we as educators have built barriers um, for for families and then if a if, if a parent does want to say something, that's like, well, those those parents, they're they're radical, and they don't, you know. So yeah, or we uh, label them helicopter parents or lawnmower parents or whatever. Yeah, right? you know, and and that was that was often the <clears throat> the the thing that I was finding. That's why I was I was so interested in you know how do we involve parents more because let's let's face it, you know, I, you know, we have parents that are working graveyard shifts. You know, and, you know, and we have parents that are that are in their teens that are bringing their children over. So, you know, how do we not, you know, know, educating parents is such a it's it's such a phrase that that I really don't want to kind of get into here. But how do we work with families um, in order to understand what their needs are? But at the same time saying, okay, these are the needs of your child. Um, you know, and this is the development in which they're going through. So this is what we're going to be doing. Here's some tools, you know, but let, let us know what your child is like at home because we only see them for part of the day. Yeah. It's definitely meeting everyone where they're at. Right. And having an understanding about their style, their culture, because there's no one right way. Otherwise the book would have been published and we'd be awesome parents. Um, I have, four kids to go back to a previous question. My oldest will actually be 18 in December. My youngest will be eight in October. Wow. And um, 
I can definitely say from my experience, the way I was raised, I did a 180. Like I did the complete opposite because I knew what I experienced was not, you know, the right way to do it, so to speak. And so I did it differently. So for us to come in and say, I'm going to teach you how to raise your child is not appropriate. Like we don't know all of their details, their experiences. So for sure, it's about meeting them where they're at. I think also creating a space because there are families in my experience and all of our experiences in education that aren't always available, um, allowing for mentorships. So if I have a TK or a preschool kinder, why can't I have a fifth grade mentor who checks on me? Or if I'm a K-8, I I did that at a school site. We were a K-8 and it was one of the best things we did. We worked with the kids who... Um, were struggling in behavior in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and we partnered them with a teacher. And as they showed positive behavior, they then became a mentor to a younger student at that school. So it just empowered them to continue to make good choices. And I think there's opportunities like that today too. We can use that. Yeah. You're sharing a lot of really good things, and I think you've built a strong foundation for our next question, you're going to start working on your doctorate. Can you share with us your um, area of specialty or that you'll be researching in your area of study? Um, so, yes, I start actually in three weeks. Yay. <laughs> um, I'm getting my doctorate in educational leadership, and I want to focus on we have what's called parent ambassadors in our school district. And so they're a community liaison that represents a school site and bridges communication to our families at that school. Um, and running along the same lines, as I mentioned, of the workforce that there's a grant for through the state of California. I want to work with local community colleges that will allow us to do a trainer of trainer models at our school sites and actually allow course or college credit to our families so that they become our future workforce. Um, That does a couple of things. One, it educates our families so they know they understand better why we're doing what we're doing. Um, Two, they can implement these ideas at in home um, and give feedback. Like, you know, I know this is the theory, but when I put it to practice, it doesn't quite turn out that way, right? And so we can adjust and support as a community. Um, three, it builds our, our our classified and our certificated staff. And eventually our staff looks like our kids, right? Like we mirror who we're teaching and supporting at our school sites. So um, and it helps our whole community because we have a larger uh, workforce working in the community. So that's what I want to research and work along. Wow, that's that's great. And um, we won't get into it here, but you have two people here that that would love to, if you need any assistance whatsoever, um, let us know. I'll take you yeah. up on it. <laughs> yeah, because it's, no, it's, it's fun. Um, at least my program was really fun. Um, I would do it all over again, um, the research part. So yeah, just enjoy your time. But yeah, let's let's talk afterwards because I would I'm I'm interested just to hear what your ultimate goals are. Um, so I'll quit talking about it, even though I'm like jumping at the bit to <laughs> get more. Yeah, involved. Fred's passion is you know mentoring researchers and and, you know, doctoral students. So that's good. And I agree. Yeah. The doctoral journey is so rewarding. It was, I really enjoyed my coursework as well. I loved it. 
Well, I'm excited. I'm just taking a deep breath right before Mm -hmm. I start. Yeah, you'll be very busy. (laughs) It'll be some of the hardest work that you will put into anything. Uh, But it's, it's, it's rewarding. But it's, but what's cool is that now you're the expert in it. Yeah. Um, And so you're not, um, you know, if, if, if we could ease your mind in, in, in any way, like I would, I would always tell my undergrads who were, they're like, why would I want to do, do something like that? I was like, well, because during your undergrad years, you're, you're studying 25 volumes of stuff, stuff that you may not even, even, even like when you go for your master's, you're, you're now studying maybe 10 volumes because now you're specialized in, in one area. When you go for your doctorate, it's down to five volumes. And one of those volumes is yours. Um, you know, and so, so that's what, you know, that's what makes it so, okay, time out. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's talk afterwards. Um, so, so, so Tara, one of the things that, that we do at, at the end of every podcast um, is ask our, ask our guests what their one call to action is. You know, what's the one thing, the one takeaway that you would want people that are listening to glean from you. So, so Tara, what, what is your call to action? My um, call to action is to always support and build the capacity of those around me so that they all see their true leaders. That's short and to the point. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's what I, that's always what I try to work for. Yeah. I love it. Well, Tara, thank you for your time today. Thank you for all of your work with students and people and um, and sharing your personal experiences. We really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Mm-hmm.